This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. You're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Paul Muldoon, the poetry editor of the New Yorker magazine, and it's my great delight to welcome you here today. Now, as you know, on this programme, we invite poets to choose a poem from the New Yorker archive to read and discuss. And then we ask them to read one of their own poems that, as it happens, has been published in the magazine. Now, my guest today is Rowan Ricardo Phillips, whose first collection of poetry, The Ground, was awarded a Whiting Writers Award. Welcome, Rowan. Thanks very much, Paul. Happy to be here. Now, the poem you've chosen to read is Feel Free by Nick Laird, a fellow countryman of mine. He's from County Tyrone in Northern Ireland. I mention it because it's relevant, I think, to this poem. So tell us what in particular about Feel Free caught your attention. Well, I mean, Paul, aside from it just being a magnificent poem, to start with, the context was funny. That came out in the November 17th issue of the magazine last year. I was born in November 18th, so that week I was turning, heaven forbid, 40. I found myself thinking about a lot of different things, among them the fact that we just had our second child. They're both born, my two daughters, right in the same week. So I'm turning 40. We have a very puckish newborn in the house. And I'm thinking about poems, and I'm thinking about how impossible it is for me to really write about children, about my children in particular. I find it very difficult, and I'm scared of it. And I'm not really scared of much when it comes to writing, but with The Frost at Midnight, A Prayer for My Daughter, Larkins, Born Yesterday, I really thought that genre is kind of spoken for. You know, you've written wonderful poems. There are a lot of great poems out there. And when the stakes I saw this, are kind of high somehow. One doesn't want to mess oh. it up. Is that, is that it? Yeah. I mean, stakes for me are really stakes and risk are the two most important things when it comes to thinking about how you enter into something as an artist, particularly as a poet. Nick's not a countryman of mine, obviously, but we're around the same age and seeing him approach this with such a freshness, it has its own voice. It has an authority that I think is just marvelous and difficult to pull off. I read this poem, I don't know how many times when I first saw it, I wasn't able to put it down. Nick Laird's children are addressed in the poem, in the course of the poem, which is a bold move. To say the least, you learn a lot about how to do things well in that the poem doesn't begin with either address. That's right. But it works its way towards there. It starts very much, I think, a poem that's really caught up with the self in a colloquial way. What we like, I like, I like, I like all of these things. But then you find that the poem, its only address is actually to the children and the only place. It seems as though the poem is everywhere. But by the time you get to near the end, the antepenultimate line, I like to lie here. And you realize all the time you've been right there beside the sleeping children. But the mind has taken you different places. Wonderful act of making 
It is. We should mention one or two of the places so that the listener has an opportunity just to prepare for a couple of words I think are a little out of the ordinary. For example, there's this place name which people from County Tyrone may not even know. It's Craig and Devsky. Mm-hmm. And it's the site of a six, probably a 6,000 year old court tomb. And that's worth knowing. The name itself means I'm not sure exactly what it means. The Cragen bit means a rocky place. It's like the word crag. Uh, Devsky, we're not entirely sure. It's hard to figure out the etymology of place names. It may have something to do with good water or something like that. But that image of the court tomb, the Neolithic tomb, is worth keeping in mind. Anything else you think we should know as we before you embark on reading it? The way that Belted Galloways comes up casually, I think, is really rich. And also, he has a wonderful list in that third part that we get to. He talks also about Nina Simone singing the Twelfth of Never. Mm -hmm. I think that that song's really important because it's a song that's been passed on. Nina Simone performed this in 1963. And there's a way in which this type of poem, this topic of poem, is also something that's passed on. It's been carried forward from when we began to start writing and really thinking about our strengths, our limits, and how we pass things on in our own genealogy. So I thought that song was really beautiful in that sense to be mentioned there in that list. Why don't we hear the poem if you'd be kind enough to read it for us? Feel free. To deal with all the sensational loss, I like to interface with Earth. I like to do this in a number of ways. I like to feel the work I am exerting being changed, the weight of my person refigured. And I like to hang above the ground, thus, hammocks, snorkeling, alcohol. I also like the mind to feel the kind of natural buoyancy, and to that end I set aside a day a week, Shabbat, to not act. Having ceded independence to the sunset, I will not be shaving, illuminating rooms, or raising the temperature of food. If occasionally I like to feel the leavening of being near a much larger, unnatural tension, I walk off a Sunday through the high fields of blanket bog, saxifrage, a few thin, belted galloways rounding Loch Malin to stand by the form of beauty upheld in a scrubby acre at Kravendevsky, where I do duck and enter under a capstone mapped by rival empires of yellow, feather moss, and powdery, white, lichen. I like then to stop, crouched, and press my back on a housing of actual rock, coldness which lives for a while on the skin. And I like when I give you the night feed, Harvey, how you're really concentrating on it, fists clenched, eyes shut, like this is bliss. Two, I like a steady disruption, I like it when the solid mantle turns to shingle and water rushes up it over and over in love. My white noise machine from Argos is set to crashing wave, but I'm not averse to the presence of numerous and minute quanta moving very fast in unison. Occasions when a light wind undulates the ears of wheat or a hesian sack of pearl barley seed is sliced with a pocket knife and pours. I like the way it sounds pattering on stone. I like how the starlings over Monty cohere and separate their bodies into one cyclonic symphony. And I like that the hawk of the mind catches at their purse, pulse, call, arc. I like the excitation passing as a shadow ripple back and how the bag is snatched, rolls slack, straight, 
falciform, mouthing, bubbling, a pumping heart. I like to interface with millions of colored pixels depicting attractive people procreating on a screen itself independent on rare metals mined by mud-gray children who trudge up bamboo scaffolding above a grayish-red lake of belching mud. I like how the furnace-burning earth instills in me reflexive gestures of timidity and self-pity and deference as I walk along the kind of surfaces grass, say, or sand, unable ever to meet with my eyes the gaze of the sun. Three. I can imagine that my first and fifth marriages will be to the same human, a woman. The first marriage working well enough that we decide to try again as soon as it's, you know, mutually convenient. I can see that. I like the fact that we're super-cooled star matter, even if I can't envisage you as anything other than warm and bleating. The thing is, I could be persuaded fairly easily to initiate immune responses by the fake safety signals of National anthems, cleavage, family photographs, country lanes, large-eyed mammals, fireworks, the King James Bible, Nina Simone singing the Twelfth of Never, cave paintings, coffins, dolphins, dolmens. But I like it also when the fat impasto of the canvas gets slashed by a tourist with a claw hammer and a glimpse is caught of what you couldn't say. Entanglement I like. Spooky action at a distance, analogizing some little thing, including this long glance across the escalators, or how you know the song before you switch the station on. When a photon of light meets a half-silvered mirror and splits, one meets the superposition of two, being twinned. And this repeats. Tickling your back, Catherine, to get you to sleep. I like to lie here with my eyes closed, and think of my school friends' houses before choosing one to walk through slowly. Room by Sunlit Room. What a magnificent poem. Oh, isn't it, though? This last image of the school friends, and it's not Catherine's school friends' uh-huh. houses, but my school friends' houses before choosing one to walk through slowly. Room by Sunlit Room. Somehow, for me, that image of the sunlit room, of course, one sense of the word room is, is indeed the word stanza in, the, in right. the Italian Stazioni, that's uh, right, tradition. Yeah. And it's almost as if we've walked through stanza by sunlit stanza. Earlier in the, in the poem, there's this complete seeding of agency. I won't be shaving. I won't be illuminating rooms. So by the time you get to the idea that you're walking through room after sunlit room, there's this change that's happened, and that's what fantastic poetry does. It creates this change, and it's no surprise that here the change is natural. The person isn't illuminating the rooms, but rather the sun does that type of work. It kind of brightens the stanzas as well. I love that. And saxifrage. I love that word. The rock breaker. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, in the October 13th, 2014, 
issue of the magazine, The New Yorker published your own poem, Measure for Measure, good title, which you're going to read for us now, Rowan Ricardo Phillips. Anything that we should know about Measure for Measure, apart from the obviously the allusion to Shakespeare, as we hear it? No, I think it's like Ginsburg said in Howell, this really happened. <laughs> <laughs> now, the fact that it really happened, does that does it matter that it really happened? No. I mean, sometimes the things that are that really happened are the most difficult things to write about. I couldn't agree with you more. I guess at the end, you know, I was going for an image in this poem that reminded me of Blake, you know, the ancient days, measuring the compass, but reverting it, actually. So that's what those horns are trying to do with the compass. Right. You know, that's such an interesting verb, and I'm glad you brought it up. And this is so that the listener is prepared for it. At the very last line of the poem, to compass the valley between his horns, I was looking at the word. It's not a word we use very much. It's used again by Shakespeare in, among other plays, I'm sure, Two Gentlemen of Verona. It's used in the sense, I think, of winning a young woman. The idea of seizing, of encircling, of surrounding, it has that particular thrust in the Elizabethan era. Yeah. And I was going for a little bit of that. Measure for measure. Alone in Woody Creek, Colorado, I fell asleep reading Measure for Measure. Right at the part where the Duke delivers his Old Testament decision of haste paying for haste and leisure answering for leisure. Like quitting like and wait for it. Measure for measure. I saw it performed once in Stratford. I was maybe 20. I only remembered the measure still for measure part until now. It stuck with me, but the rest of it was wiped clean from my memory. All of Stratford, too. Still, the way the actor leaned on that half line, measure still for measure, as though it were the measure of his self, measure still for measure, All these years, I remembered being the heart of the play. It's great gist. But I forgot it was a death sentence. Whether Angelo deserved such a fate or Isabella's ability to rise above the mire doesn't matter. Death, not beauty, woke me. My neck aches. All of Shakespeare feels like lead on my chest. Not for death. Let's face it, death awaits us, usually with less prescient language, but death measures us with a noun's contempt for our imagination. Being death, but not dying. Making do. Like when I turn from the bard, look outside and behold a herd of a hundred elk surviving the snow as they know how. Being elk. An hour ago they were in the hills, but now they graze a mere five feet away, their world othered by these austere windows. The massive seven-pointer, chin held high to prevent his thick neck from crashing down, hoofs the snow and starts towards me, but then turns to compass the valley between his horns. Measure for Measure, read there by Rowan Ricardo Phillips. One of the things I love about this poem is the connection between my neck aches uh, from the speaker of the poem, who is, I suppose, someone not unlike yourself, though not perhaps quite yourself. Would that be right? 
that would be accurate. <laughs> I mean, that's one of the one of the extraordinary things about a poem. We 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 need to figure out who speaks it, and even if it's an autobiographical poem, of course, nothing is strictly autobiographical. Everything is autobiographical, but nothing quite. Absolutely. But what, what I love about this is the connection then between the speaker and the this great elk with his uh, seven point. Tines, I suppose Shakespeare would call them his horns, and how he is, you know, at risk always of being dragged down by his own splendor. What a fabulous image that is. Thank you. I guess I, I felt this moment, this kind of itch to say, well, this really happened because I'm a New Yorker born and, and raised, and I've kind of found a lot of natural elements in the city. And so when I am out in nature, I feel this great sublime rush in me and this type of access to interface with, if you will, mm-hmm. humanity that's still new and exciting for me and the language of it. So I don't find nature in cities as much as I find kind of like interactions, communities that I typically would think of as being urban suddenly also in nature. And in this way, I kind of find this in these communities of, of elk that I thought were very far away. I was reading Measure for Measure, and they were, I don't know how far away I could see them, but I fall asleep, and next thing I know, there's no separation. It's, this is going to say it sounds strange, but I kind of forgot that was possible. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, it's, it's a wonderful poem, and thank you very much for reading it for us. Thanks, thank you Paul. very much for being with us today. Always my pleasure. It's been a blast. Measure for Measure by Rowan Ricardo Phillips, uh, as well as Nick Laird's poem Feel Free, can be found on newyorker.com. Nick Laird's latest book of poems is Go Giants, and Rowan Ricardo Phillips' second collection, Heaven, is coming out in June 2015. I'm Paul Muldoon, poetry editor of The New Yorker. Until next time, thank you. You can subscribe to this podcast and other free New Yorker podcasts in the iTunes store. You can hear more poetry read by the authors in newyorker.com and on the digital edition for tablets and phones at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Pintigree Ferryman from the album The Highlander's Farewell by Alastair Fraser and Natalie Ross from Colburny Records. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast was produced by Jill Duboff and Alex Barron of NewYorker.com with help from Elizabeth Dennison. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts.